0: Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I'm Brandon Polk. And welcome to Episode 7 of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. In this episode, we're going to talk about the P word. And I don't even know why I'm trying to hide it. The word is in the title. But in conversations leading up to this recording, when people have asked what the next podcast will cover, I say privilege, and everyone's reaction is the same. Their eyes widen and their eyebrows shoot up because of the polarizing nature around the subject. Privilege is a word given to an idea that says there are certain advantages that some people have access to based solely on their race, gender, or economic status. These are advantages that are wholly unearned because we were born into them we inherited opportunities from decisions that other people made. The most obvious ones are the ones that our parents made, but also those that others made leading up to the time and place where you find yourself. In an article in the New Yorker back in 2014, they had a Q and A with someone who really brought privilege or the idea of privilege to the forefront of our conversations in a uh, 1988 essay, um, this Peggy McIntosh, a women's studies scholar at Wellesley started writing about it in an essay called white privilege and male privilege a personal account of coming to see correspondences through work in women's studies and in this essay she outlined uh, a variety of different kinds of privilege white privilege specifically she lists 46 examples and in, in this new yorker article uh, they highlight two of them number 21 is i'm never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group Number 24, I can be pretty sure that if I asked to talk to the person in charge, I would be facing a person of my race. And so in those examples, uh, she kind of highlights, you know, some things that she has access to, interpersonal dynamics, I would say. Uh, And then there's also things related to privilege that gives us access to some more economic prosperity opportunities. Uh, And so... Brandon, those are kind of the things that we, we're going to touch on all those, I, I feel like in this episode, but mm. specifically related to the examples of like w- real world consequences related to our economic prosperity, because I feel like that that's where a lot of the conversation kind of takes place in terms of you, you know, white people predominantly have access to some of these resources that allow for greater opportunities, right? That, uh, that isn't really accessible to the black community. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be
0: honest, the subject is a little daunting to go in a little bit deeper, even more than we have already. Uh in episode two, I believe it was two, we talked about whiteness and this is that we sort of tackled with calling this like whiteness the sequel (laughs) because it's like uh privilege isn't is is not being white. Uh privilege is white people and their relationship to whiteness, which is the construct. And privilege is also black and brown people in our relationship to whiteness more than it is actually our relationship to white people and i think that the reason why this is such a controversial or polarizing subject is that white people and correct me if i'm wrong mark the other white person in the room mm-hmm. um that when i say white privilege it feels like an assault on your character it feels like an assault on you as a person it feels like i'm forcing you to take blame for something that you were not responsible for. I'm forcing you to say that what you have didn't come from your own hard work, um, but instead that it was just freely given to you. And uh, I think we'll get into this, that that is actually not what white privilege is when I say it. When we say it as Black people or brown people, we literally mean that the social construct of whiteness and the relationship that white people have to it has afforded them opportunities um, that have equalized for all white people, for the most part, that doesn't mean that white people don't experience poverty or don't experience, um, you know, not, not everyone is accessing the optimized opportunity, right? Or, 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 or is optimizing or maximizing their lives based on that opportunity. But there is a quality of opportunity, generally speaking. Um, for black and brown people, there is history, hundreds of years of history that keeps us. Um, systemically from accessing. It is our relationship to whiteness, our relationship to the social construct, our relationship to that baked into the fabric of the country that keeps us from actually having opportunity. Um, we talked about this before, the, dim- the difference between, um, between equity and equality. And equality is purely that is it is an equality of opportunity. Equity is when you recognize that other people have had it better than others because of things that are systemic, and equity, from a governmental standpoint, government system standpoint, from a philanthropic st- standpoint, is someone reaching um, back and saying you this other pe- people group, black or brown group, probably is, as as we're talking about, did not get um, the same access to resources. There's an acknowledgement of that, and then we're going to give more resources and more opportunity and um uh more help to those people so they can catch up to where other say white people are because of their relationship to whiteness over time. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah, that's just how I'd like to get into the conversation, <laughs> yeah. you know, just to sort of frame frame it or reframe it so as not to be so hostile
1: right.
0: for anyone that's listening. And yeah. this has happened to me before. Yeah. You know yeah like wasn't that long ago actually having a conversation about whiteness with someone and the person on the other side of the table was literally offended at the idea mm-hmm. so um love him yeah we had a conversation but he was unsettled and uh i then am also speaking for all of my race having the conversation with another white person who totally saw it as an assault on him and his family out of a certain place in this country, as mm. opposed to me speaking to white people in general. So
1: yeah, 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 uh, and that's exactly right. And in my like kind of evolution on this conversation, um, I did feel accused and um, that and made to feel guilty, kind of around what it is that I had. And honestly, uh, you know, I grew up in a family. We have a large family where my dad worked two jobs to to provide for us um and so even like i grew up in a pretty like we never lacked like we never had things that we you know we we always had food on the table and things like that uh but there were still like economic things that there things that i wanted that i started working when i was 15 years old because i wanted those things that my family just wasn't able to provide and and you know and that i feel almost kind of silly talking about that but there were certain clothes that i wanted so i started working so that i could get those clothes or a car Mm -hmm. and things like that and Mm -hmm. so and and the way I framed it in my head, the way I kind of came around to it was, it was similar to like what we talked about in church growing up and we would call those blessings. You know, mm-hmm. I'm blessed to have mm-hmm. these things and there's you know, some people who don't have access to these, these same things. And so as a Christian, if you find yourself blessed with, you know, means, uh, looking out for the mm. under, under privileged Interesting. And, and that's interesting actually exact, uh, like a church word is underprivileged. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so even moving out here to washington dc quitting my job in dallas moving out here without a job only knowing one person there was a certain amount of privilege that i was accessing right like i'm i'm educated um and i have a a job in journalism that i was able to to get based on some relationships that i had access to Hmm. uh and i can i have a certain amount of like i i speak well and i can present myself well and these are all things that i've i've been able to do because of opportunities that i've been given based on where i was born and how i was born as a white male right um and these aren't things that i might not have been able to take that leap had i not felt been able to tap into that privilege if that makes sense i'm I'm able to come to dc and there was still a certain amount of even despite all the things that i have there's still a certain amount of like Uncertainty or fear around the fact that I don't have an advanced degree, right? And even m- when I, I do have a degree, but I, I didn't make the best grades, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was still some fear around I'm going to a city that's very highly educated. I'm not as educated, uh, but there were still certain aspects of my privilege that I could tap into.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. You just said something that actually made me, I don't know, I don't know if it made me cringe or just made me go, oh man, the way we talk about things um the church experience like calling things blessings like i just put myself in a white person's shoes for about five seconds and thought if you're at church growing up and things that you got were blessings or some things were blessings and that was sort of the language around it and then having to maybe even consider for a second that even those blessings like maybe came from a position of privilege is a little hard to deal with and kind of daunting and i don't envy you so but I, I think you know, one of the things that we should also talk about and address, not only in the context of white privilege, but I think there's this overarching question of privilege in general um, that is, uh, you know, well, the question for me is, is there black privilege as well? And um, you know, I'm cautious. Um, but as you were talking about your family I was thinking about my family now. My parents didn't work two jobs. I do have an advanced degree. Um, And I think the reason, one of the reasons why I have an advanced degree is because there was a value system in my family that I would not only go to college, but then do more than what was required of me. And the privilege was in the value system, not so much in the opportunity, because I had to create the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was said that helped to generate that um, was this, um, this thing that was baked into me early, which was you will have to work that much more, like 10 times more, 100 times more as a black person in order to catch up or to have the same opportunities as a white person. And that's something that I know a lot of black people here, if not all black pers- all black people here on some level, is that um, you will have to work harder. For me, what made it easier for me to work harder was that it had it was baked into my actual familial experience so i had a multi-generational approach to that that made sense there was no question whether or not i would go to college or not there was no mm-hmm. question of whether or not i would get an advanced degree or not there was no question there's no question today if i want to go back to school that i should do that and that's something but that would still be unique for me as a black person to do that um, and in fact what we do know is that for minority students you know for advanced degrees are going down right now especially now for black women i think it's ticking up for black men it's ticking down like even like bachelor's degrees and master's degrees are all going down. It's like black women that are getting PhDs and master's degrees right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, it's still not at, at the degree, of course, you know, that white men and white women are. So, um, but I mean, I think we should probably just not avoid this any longer and talk about white privilege, like literally, like, do you have it? <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, I would like to say to every white person within the sound of my voice, Um, that I love you, (laughs) and I have great respect for you. Um, Whether or not I'm calling it white privilege, I would like to reframe it. I don't necessarily have words um, that suffice. So we will stick with the nomenclature, white privilege for now, Um, and define that as our relationship to whiteness. If you are white within the sound of my voice, at least, I would like you to know that I believe that you are a benefactor of what we now know as white privilege, uh, what we are calling. Um, I am not making an accusation on your value or on your character, on your morals um, by saying that. I'm not saying that that you have not worked for what you have. I am saying that you just didn't have to work as hard, not because you were lazy, but because the way you worked is exactly as much as you thought you needed to work because that's the system that you were born in. You have no, you've not had a reason to consider that the ease at which you work for something and then the, the, the process of getting something from that work, um, having the opportunity to actually grow wealth, have land, have a house, um, can generally speaking come easier to you as a white person as opposed to a black person and there are a couple of reasons we'll just talk about one right now one is 400 years or more worth of opportunity for black families. I'm sorry for white families to own land and to um, have economic growth um, as a as a part of or um, or as a condition of, lo- of, of home ownership in say the 1800s if your family lived here and they had a home, and they were able to expand that wealth somehow. And one home or some land begat more land and more houses and things like that. You know, then, you know, then you've got a head start on everybody that didn't have that. Well, who are the people that didn't have that? My people didn't have it because we didn't even get the forty acres and a mule we were promised by Lincoln. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, and we were fighting for that, and too little, too late. That even when the Emancipation Proclamation happened, it still took fifty years for people to like start to get. Get that going in other parts of the country, you know. Um, uh, I would say more than fifty years because we were still in 1968 and people still hadn't <laughs> gotten gotten the message, you know, that black folks can actually buy a house in a white neighborhood. You know, like we were still trying to pass that message on, and white folks were still leaving and kind of running away from us, you know, which left us in a pickle of not being able to buy houses either, you know. So or buy land, and what is land? Land is power. Land is privilege. Land is is opportunity houses our opportunity and um, uh, so anyway I'll, I'll just kind of go there I don't know what your response is to this yeah. I don't know if you're well, upset with no, me or not Mark no no okay not
1: at all. <laughs> uh, because I think that you know I talked about these like privilege is literally it's inheriting you know uh, cuz I didn't choose where I was born I didn't choose when I was born uh, my parents maybe had a say in a little of that right but even then it was like I'm here You know, uh, maybe based on some conscious decisions that they wanted to (laughs) have a a child, and I just happen to be that, right? Um, And so I'm inheriting uh, things that were not of my own doing at all. Nobody, nobody earned where they uh, appear in the world, right? And we're kind of just deposited here. And so, you know, I talk about inheritance, and then there is a literal inheritance. Like of mm-hmm. passing down, you know, uh, amassed wealth, and maybe it's not even wealth. It doesn't even have to be a lot. But say, you know, if you own a home and you can pass that down, you can pass on the house. Uh, like my grandfather died in December and um, and passed that on to the uh, to his daughters, and you know they had a decision with what to do with that house. But it literally an inheritance, and um, and being a benefactor, Brandon, you use that word, and so if you can work backwards to that, I think that there are some real world consequences today that impact the economic prosperity or the pursuit of sure. that. And you mentioned some an interesting story. I don't know if you care to bring that up now, but uh, in the sh- past. Sure. Um, about Cory Booker. Yeah, and- sure. I can talk
0: about Cory Booker. I'm trying to remember the name of this Netflix documentary, but I'll find it and we'll kind of put it up somewhere. But, um, but Cory Booker tells this story about how his parents were obviously African-American, if you, don't know, if you do not know who Senator Cory Booker is, um, but he um, is African-American and his parents were not able to buy a home in a white neighborhood. Um, and so they were working with um, a group of people that would help African-Americans get home ownership. And so the way it worked is that you know this black couple Booker's parents would go into the real estate agent and attempt to make an offer on this particular house. Um, The real estate agent would come up with any excuse to not allow them to do that. So then right after that, they would leave. And then a white couple, same, uh, just the same in every other way, except that they were not black. Mm. And they made an offer on the house, it was no problem. (laughs) Mind you, a couple had just walked in there and said, we want to buy the house, they made the exact same offer and they were able to get the house. Mm. But the trick was that the white couple was actually putting the offer down on behalf of Cory Booker's parents. Mm. So when it came time to sign all the paperwork, Booker's parents show up and the white real estate agent like loses his mind and goes, no, you cannot do this, you deceive me. And actually, um, I didn't tell you this Mark, but part of the story is that the real estate agent um, actually punched Cory Booker's dad in in the face, and then like there was like s- like glass and all this kind of stuff like spread all over the place. He was super mad about it. Now they were able to buy the house, still and purchase the house, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and how Cory Booker, how he describes it, he goes that singular decision, that that moment, was the thing that set him up for success. To uh, whether it was school, uh, the relationships that he had, and even um, helping him to progress to the point of being in the united states senate so um i think that's a that's an example of how important access is but it's also an example modern even today where black and brown people are not able to gain access in predominantly white neighborhoods for whatever reason um not not always because there is a wealth within that black family it literally is because people don't want you there Mm -hmm. and i made this comment earlier you know that um you know if you are african-american or brown if you're not african-american whatever it is you know and you're moving into a white neighborhood you know um you know no one's ever like um we are just so glad you're here (laughs) you know i mean the history says that i mean white flight is a real thing you know and in the 60s when when black folks are trying to move into white neighborhoods they were leaving You know, they were like, there's no way you're going to like blackify this neighborhood, you know, like we're not going to do that. You're not going to. And people saying that crime was going to rise because black people were going to walk, like live in in these white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Now, the converse, of course, is then Well, we live in Washington, D.C., you know, this is becoming more gentrified here. And uh, Southeast D.C. has been uh, like historically um, uh, homes owned by black families, you know, for years. And now white people are moving into the, to the neighborhoods and then gentrifying those neighborhoods. Of course, you know, so it's actually pushing black people out. Now black people have never had the option to actually say, um, "Hey, you know what? We don't want white people here. You can't come." Mm-hmm. You know, like no one's like going to the news media and then and then telling and then asking questions. Do you think that crime's gonna rise because white people are moving to your neighborhood? Like that never happened, right? But the reality is that black people are being pushed out of the neighborhood where it's not white flight. It's like white invasion. You know, it's like, we're going to come in, they're going to come in, going to push out all the black people. And then, um, and then where do those black families go? They're being bought out of their homes in order to gentrify, whiteify a neighborhood. And what does that do to the opportunity of those black families? And how does the passage of wealth happen? Um, and uh, I don't know, it's just, it's just super complicated. And And that's not to say that every white family of course has, access you know to mm-hmm. funds to buy a home or things like that so again just know we're operating in generalizations right now to make the point um but we are like acknowledging that not every white family is in this station you know of being able of, of not having economic depravity on on some level you know but but the uh the uh the thing we're we're, we're talking to is generalizable for the sake of the conversation
1: for so sure. for sure and i think that also brings up some things about you know if if I am trying to do something like even go to college and fill out a college application, I'm able to do that because maybe my parents did and they kind of, they pushed me to do that and they know kind of how they've, they've navigated it. If my parents have bought a home, when I get around to go buy a home, my parents are going to be a resource that I'm going to reach out to and say, hey, can I help me walk through this? Like, help me understand what are the things that I need mm-hmm. to be aware of? And if you don't, if, you know, if black families aren't buying homes, it's, if that's not something that they're used to, if they're not used to managing wealth or or building wealth like that uh, by owning land, then that's something that if you're not familiar with it, it presents a kind of fear, right, around it. Um, we've talked about the example of swimming. Anything that you haven't been exposed <laughs> to presents fear and anxiety mm-hmm. when you when you have the desire to enter into it because mm-hmm. it's something that's unknown and, and can be scary, especially um, if you're gonna be spending money, right, on it. And um, so even the, like the literacy around being able to do those things, just understanding mm-hmm. around it is uh, is big too. I think.
0: Yeah, sure. I, that, that makes me think of something else. Uh, the, the CBS came out like last week or the week before there was an article actually about um, black college students, black graduates actually. Um, uh, this is a very good example about privilege. Um, they would say that white their white counterparts were amassing more wealth if not for the simple reason that white children of their parents who have gone to college don't actually have to give any money back to their families. Mm-hmm. They go forward, they look. Up, they up think about home ownership, think about growing their wealth, getting the jobs. If you are black, hands down, like you are actually giving money back to your family in order to help mm-hmm. support them, mm-hmm. you know, if you are able to go to college. And um, we'll find the article and send that too. But I, I thought that was really, and I think that's, that's actually something that I, that's happening in my family too. You know, mm-hmm. there are times when, you know, you have to put back into the pot because, mm-hmm. you know, our families did a lot to get us into college and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, you know, the, the saying there is like, you know, I, you know, I wanted to give you what I didn't have, you know? Um, now my dad didn't go to college, my mom went to college, you know, but here again, that was part of the, the, uh, the value of the family, you know, for doing that. Um, but there are times, you know, as I've become an adult and have amassed, you know, my own earnings, you know, that, um, I have been, I don't want to say set back, but it felt that, um, that need that familial tie you know to help financially mm-hmm. um you know where other people in the family who care about and sacrifice for me really needed the help and the support most white families that i know white people that i don't have to think about that
1: mm-hmm. you know yeah. yeah and i you know uh if you innovate if anybody creates something uh innovation comes out of usually experiences or pain that someone experienced or st- hardship or struggle and so I think like that, I've read that people who are closest to, um, you know, maybe they experienced economic hardship are more prone to give or to donate to sure. like charitable um, Certainly. organizations than even wealthier people just because wealthier people tend to be kind of inoculated from, uh, from that pain. So it's not even something that registers on the radar because they're not it's, – it just doesn't exist in their world. Mm. You know, um, so I kind of want to talk about like change gears a little bit and talk about what an unhealthy relationship to whiteness might look mm-hmm. like, uh, and what does it look like when we kind of have a toxic understanding of what privilege white privilege is, if that makes sense. Are you asking me? I, I kind of am, yeah. I mean, I don't know, I'm not white. Um, uh, let's see, um, or it doesn't even have to be well, an unhealthy <laughs> relationship to whiteness, you know, what does that look like? Does it look like anything? as a as a black man
0: well i mean i think there's this overarching question you know like whiteness can anything good come from whiteness let's define it again whiteness is the social construct right so it is the thing based in racial science that says that white people are more superior right and um and therefore should be given more have access to and that people that are black or brown should not have access to, should not be treated with dignity. Um, a toxic relationship with whiteness is one that agrees with that. Um, a if you're a white person, like, and you believe that black people are subpar, even in the unconscious, you know, um, if you treat black or brown people differently than you would treat people in your own family, then that is a toxic relationship with whiteness, even if it comes out at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Even if it comes out at the Christmas table, those black people, those people, they, you know, the references to they as though they are they are something other, otherizing people as though they are not like you. And we've talked about this before here again on that episode on whiteness is that we are 99.9% the same. Race is, um, or rather our color differences are not real, and yet socially it's very real because of the meaning that we attribute to them. So um I think that's number one that comes to mind, you know, now, uh, if you're black or brown, what does a toxic or unhealthy relationship to whiteness look like? Hmm. Well, I mean, I've said this before too, it's like, just because whiteness exists doesn't mean that I don't have power. Just because whiteness exists doesn't mean that I don't have the ability to navigate through it and overcome it here again. That takes an acknowledgement, it takes a frame of reference, it's a perspective um, that we have to learn holistically as Black people how to engage. Um, My unhealthy relationship with whiteness was huge, Um, and I've said this before, like I did not really acknowledge my own Blackness till I was 30, and it was because intrinsically I was like, if I'm going to get ahead, I'm going to have to play like these people do. I have to actually, so without even recognizing it, I like assimilated myself into this idea of what it meant to be white. Um, actually, so much so that my inner self, my identity, I was actually picturing myself as a white person most of my life and then having a nervous breakdown probably around 29 or 30. Like, oh my gosh, like I'm actually, I'm brown. What does that mean? And is black beautiful? And if whiteness is the construct that says that white people are beautiful, then what does that make me? and i bought into that system because i'm somewhat successful in life so does that mean that i've betrayed my own you know color or love like i have a complicated relationship with blackness you know mm. um if it's beautiful or not you know um if it's worthy of being respected if it's worthy of being treated equally that's a real thing i think that black people go through especially if you're experiencing some success as a black or brown person you know so i don't know
1: mm. yeah uh I think that's helpful. I mean that's kind of gives me a, a glimpse into that. Um, and I think for for white people, an unhealthy relationship is lack of acknowledgement of the context of where we find ourselves. you know that's I think that's kind of obvious what you what mm. you mentioned. And I think that that can manifest itself in a couple of ways. It can lead to hyper. Um, tribalism and so mm-hmm. you see that right now in like the alt-right where it you know, you might look like nationalism or, or whatever uh, where yeah. we are kind of digging in our heels and we're saying uh, or they're saying rather that um, I, I actually I can't even really empathize with the message but uh, <laughs> so I'm having kind of trouble yeah, like, it's like let's verbalizing you, well, it try to empathize with uh, the alt-right uh, uh, I mean go for yeah, it no. I mean, yeah. um, around like I guess their messaging is we god I, I really can't even I can't even get there I'm having trouble with it
0: I mean they're just very extreme I mean like it's <laughs> it's like you know it's it's the otherizing you know we're, we're gonna talk politics briefly here about the alt-right I mean like they are they're what I call like the, the post-modern right like they are the most extreme of ideology right so um, the Trumpian alt-right individual is the person that says that white privilege does not exist And every black person um, on their own is responsible for getting success or having success in any way, right? It doesn't take into account any of it, and it's easy to do when you think about people in the Midwest, you know, white people in the Midwest, you know, who have, you know, who who have felt forgotten, Um, and that was the narrative, you know, that Trump used, you know, to really build his base, you know. So what's there to identify with? I think it's very subtle. If you're white hey, I'm just like everybody else and I'm out here struggling too. Mm-hmm. Do I really have to buy into this like race crap? <laughs> Do I have to buy into this as a thing that's happening to me? Do I have to take responsibility for this? And um, I think that's the kind of maniacal or the diabolical thing about it is that it's like, I don't want to have to deal, if you're white, you don't have to deal with this. Yeah. I mean, what is the? I mean, what, what can your relationship to this be? If, yeah. if, if it's hard and someone gives you an out and says, that's not a thing, yeah. well heck yeah of course you take it
1: Yeah. thanks for picking that up because I completely just like, blanked it mean, like, I mean you're fine I know all about uh, the alt-right it's yeah, fine I know all about uh, the alt-right there, oh, another unhealthy way that it manifests though, in white people is white guilt uh, poor white guilt I know poor white mm-hmm. guilt where you feel guilty about where you are the things that you have uh, <laughs> and so to mm-hmm. a point where Brandon you had an interesting story about a friend who kind of confessed I'm putting you on the spot oh yeah that's true oh yeah that's fine I mean I had a
0: friend that confessed to me in college that he just was just so guilty he spent most of his life he's a white friend and uh he spent most of a, a good deal of, of his life wanting to be black because he was so guilty you know mm-hmm. he just felt so bad about it uh, i have a term for these people <laughs> i love you all and i and i appreciate if he's listening um i so appreciate him and love him to death and we're really good friends now still but i have a word for those folks um i call them super wokes you know like it's one thing to be quote unquote woke, and we haven't even tackled defining what it means to be woke yet. But um, maybe we will do that at some point. But basically, the generalizable kind of definition we can use is, you know, someone that is aware of racial differences and cares about it, and believes that white privilege exists, and that they want to be a part of the solution. I guess that's someone that's woke. Yeah. Um, the super woke person is one who is like overcompensating, you know, like severely mm-hmm. overcompensating, and will say. I'm white. I don't have any place in this conversation. I'm white. Like I have, I couldn't possibly identify what's going on in, in, in your life as a black or brown person. And they will literally minimize themselves in the room instead of recognizing their power and their influence as a white person to help the issue. Yeah. They'll try and like become nothing so that I become something, and that's not what I want. That minimizes my power too. Yeah. Super woke.
1: Yeah.
0: Super, Super woke. Super woke. S U P A. You know.
1: And I, that is a legitimate uh, concern for well for anybody, regardless of where you. find Find yourself, you know, if you're trying to be a social climber, because, and, and all this is, I guess, um, not appreciating or being content in where you are, you know, in where you were deposited, when and where that is, and how you were deposited as a man or a woman or, what have you, uh, white or black, Asian, Hispanic, and um, and trying to be something other than where you find yourself, because we all have access to certain things around us uh, and we can be sloths about it and we can like you said minimize uh, and take for granted these things or we can try to hyper ourselves and reach beyond things where we have access and i think you maybe see a lot of burnout in careers because people are trying to overextend themselves because maybe they're trying to get affirmation out of step from status um hmm. and so Those are two extremes uh, that manifest themselves in unhealthy ways. And I think a really healthy context in the conversation for race is recognizing where you are and who you are and the things that you have access to Mm -hmm. because of that uh, and then doing something with it, being empowered from that rather than from feeling guilty um, or rather than denying it altogether.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the one thing that comes to mind with that is, uh, gosh, I mean... Like, how many white people have I had conversations with about white privilege who will say to me in angst, um, uh, I have nothing to do with this, you know, and um, will bow out of the conversation because they just feel so accused, you know? And for the record, for the record, I would like to just say, that no black person wants any white person to feel guilty like you did something you weren't there we know you weren't there we know you didn't put the shackles on us on my grandparents my great-grandparents we know you didn't do that um and i wasn't in those shackles okay um so what are we talking about when when we actually make this this statement about white privilege you know like an unhealthy relationship with with white privilege is actually believing that someone who is black or brown is telling you that you were guilty at something, right? What you were guilty of is just not something you could help. It's called ignorance. You just don't, and I will mean ignorance in a negative way, not a negative connotation. Ignorance is truly bliss. If you don't know something exists, how could you live differently? If you don't know that your existence is like Disneyland, <laughs> you know, and I'm living in like, you know, the town with Chucky, you know what I mean? Or like mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger, you know what I mean? Like, like um, no one came and like made all my, like, like my neighborhood look like Pleasantville. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't the thing, you know? I think that living in a generational experience of like Pleasantville is your opportunity. The American dream is yours. Mm-hmm. If you want it, you can have it. That was a, that was a dream for white people. That wasn't a dream for black people, you know, mm-hmm. even though we bought into it. We just didn't know we couldn't access it like white people could until we got frustrated with it, and um, and now we have to figure out our own way to get there, you know. But to the point, like, what we mean is, we just don't want you to be ignorant anymore. We didn't have the op- the opportunity or the, um, uh, you know, we just didn't have the opportunity to be ignorant about our relationship to the systems in the country, right? Um, Privilege, by nature, is the existence of ignorance, you know, within the context of how, generally speaking, white people live. Um, It just is. And in the same time period that you had, like, you know, Donna Reed, um, you know, uh, I Love Lucy, and, like, all these, you know, white, white, white programs, you know, um, about the American dream and progression and, like, progressiveness or whatever it is, you know, it's the same time period that, you know, they were, that the Klan was hanging people, was hanging black people, you know, and burning churches and, mm-hmm. and blowing up, you know, churches with black girls in them. I mean, that this is the same time period, you know, so overlay that, you know, with the media, the propaganda, you know, all those things that said, we're having a fun time in America. That is mm-hmm. privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's great they weren't putting anything on the news about what's going on in black and brown with with black and brown people until King showed up until Malcolm showed up until, you know, um, uh, some of these other folks kind of showed up, Jesse Jackson and and you name it, you know, who are bringing light to these things and you just couldn't ignore it because of the demonstrations anymore. That was putting white privilege on blast. Mm -hmm. So
1: anyway. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the point of ignorance uh, because I think that that is a key component. I think privilege and why one reason it is so kind of, Toxic in like today's dialogue is because people are like pointing at you and they say, check your privilege. You know, if you're doing something that they don't like, if you're saying something you don't like, it's almost like a kind of a policing speech Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a little manipulative. um, Mm. But privilege should be an introspective work, it should be one where you're kind of digging in and experiencing gratitude for some of the things that you do have. But gratitude can only come from recognition of other things where people might not have sure right and so that doesn't mean that you're necessarily better or worse you know um because you can also you can also i guess well, what's the word i'm looking for um try to aspire too much uh, not greed but what are the, like the seven deadly sins <laughs> greed is one yeah greed is one of greed them greed is one uh, but gluttony. like lust like lust like lust and gluttony yeah, um sure. It's all not taking account for, like, what you do have and taking the inventory of those things that you do have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do that introspective yeah. work to discover what it yeah. is that you do have um, compared to other people who, who don't, who lack.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the introspection or the work of introspection is, at least for the sake of this conversation, and what I'd really like people to get out of it is that the acknowledgement of privilege does not need to be um, self-deprecating if you are white. Um, it does not need to um, be negative feeling, per se. Um, the denial of it, you know, is maintaining ignorance, perhaps for some, if not all. But what I want people to do is I want at least, at least, at least, at least, if you are white, to consider that it's at least complicated, right? And if it's not black and white. It is not the existence or the non-existence of privilege. It is historical context, and we talk about this all the time, every episode, right? What can you do? <laughs> you know, where are you at on this? Where are you at on the spectrum of understanding, and on the spectrum of acknowledgement, um, and personal digging and curiosity, where you can be open to the possibility that you just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't know, as a black person, I'm not trying to hold that against you, but I'm also trying to get some rights here. I'm also trying to get some equality and some equity. And not just because I'm greedy, not just because I'm gluttonous or lustful and I just want to have my way and I want reparations. (laughs) We haven't gotten into it yet. I said a dirty word, reparations, but it's the R word. Um, But what I do want is I want for my kids, for my seven-year-old nephew, I want him to have the opportunity, the equal opportunity um, to access education, healthcare. I want him to be able to generate wealth. I want him to have home ownership, not in his 40s. I want him to be able to do it in his 20s. If he's worked hard and gone to school, if he wants to go to school, or just been thoughtful about what his purpose and calling is, that he can actually experience the generation of wealth um, from living a good life. Mm-hmm. And um, living with good character, decent enough character, and right now that's just not the situation for every person. And some people aren't going to believe that. And all I can say is I don't need 95% of people to believe it. I just need a tipping point. Give me two to four percent mm-hmm. of white people to actually say, you know what, maybe this is a thing, mm-hmm. you know. And with that tipping point, you know, maybe we'll see some some actionable changes, you know, um, sort of happening in, happening in the way that we treat one another, um, in the way that white people actually acknowledge their power to help. Because um, the sweet irony is that the existence of privilege demands that white people actually continue to help black people and brown people in the context of equity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That will never disappear. That will always be the case. Yeah. So.
1: And, and that brings us to the point in the conversation where we want to leave you with a call to action. And that's kind of actually exactly right. Like, what do we do with this knowledge? And I think that uh, a prompt that we want to leave you with specifically at the end of this is think about what opportunities come easier to you based on where or when you were born. Uh, and then try to think about what's your reaction to that what are you feeling? Are you feeling anger, frustration, anxiety? and then try to really enter into those feelings and explore what those are really all about.
0: Yeah, I think it's really good. And the you know the thing that I here again, I've said it like five times on this episode, but just remember that you know this is not an accusation. You know, against white people, this is an indictment on whiteness, is what it is. And you are just as much, if I, if you really think about it, hmm, white people are just as much of a victim. Um, well, maybe not just as much. If it's it's like victim in the positive, I don't know if that works. <laughs> so, um, but but there is something um, very victimizing about um, living in the matrix, right? Like everything you have the steak, the potatoes, you know, you get the nice house, you get all those things. And the reality is that your lives aren't really like or really that the world doesn't actually operate like that, you know, Um, but people have spent billions of dollars getting you to live in this place, you know, Um, and they've spent not just billions of dollars, they've spent hundreds of thousands, millions of lives of black and brown people and sweet blood on the ground of this country, you know, in order to get you to be in a place of privilege. And that is, sorry, you have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um,
1: yeah, that leaves us with a whole lot. We get to to <laughs> sorry, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I can tell sorry, you that uh, next episode will not be about reparations. I don't even know <laughs> it if will not. Can, I'm not yeah. ready. We, we ain't not ready for that. It took us six episodes to get ready for privilege. Uh, so, but that will be. Something if you're to talk mad, about. call Mark. If you're mad, call Mark. <laughs> yes, uh, I think actually next episode we'll probably talk about. Kind of generational trauma. Oh, which will be lovely. It's one, of my, it's one yeah. of my favorites. It's one of my okay. favorites. Generational trauma. That'll it's be. Great. That'll be a favorite. Why, it's so one of my favorite, of my things, my favorite to talk about. things to talk about. Whatever. No, no. Whatever. <laughs> uh, but we'll talk about what generational trauma. I think that'll be really interesting. Um, so we hope that you tune into that for that discussion, and we appreciate you tuning in this time. See you then. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, And then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.